When I was in the second grade, I was having some trouble seeing the board when my teacher would write um, up on the board, and so my parents took me to the optometrist, and I think that's what it's called, right? We just call it eye doctor where I'm from, but um, they took me to the eye doctor, and they did the test, and they spun the thing, and it's like, is one better or two better? And they look exactly the same, and so you just kind of make it up. And so I did that thing when I was in second grade, and they determined that I, was, uh, I had some, some issues with my eyes, and so I got glasses in the second grade. Uh, and they were hideous. Uh, I don't know if you got glasses in grade school, but they were bigger than my face uh, at that point, uh, much like these, but uh, they, were, they were huge. Uh, and so in second grade, I got these glasses, and I hated them, and so I was begging my parents from day one, please let me get contacts. Please let me get contacts. Now, technology has advanced, and so that wouldn't maybe be as big a deal now as it was then, but the eye doctor did not want me to wear contacts in the second grade because my eye was still developing or something. I'm not even really sure what that means, and so they didn't want to put contacts on them because it could change more rapidly, and so I just kept begging my parents. I was very persistent. I wanted to be a lawyer when I grew up, so I was good at debating and skills like that, and so eventually in the fourth grade, they allowed me to get contacts. And so I got contacts in the fourth grade, and I remember trying to put them in my eyes, and I couldn't really do that. It was so difficult. It was, I, I couldn't really make it happen, but I, I just kept, kept with it because I was not going to give in and have to wear my glasses all the time because they, again, were hideous. And so uh, from the fourth grade on, really until now, I've worn contacts. And I, I have glasses, but I don't ever wear them. Some of you didn't even know I wore contacts because I never wear my glasses unless I'm having like an eye issue, like a, an infection or something nasty or like it's just I can't get my contacts in. So I never wear my glasses. And, and here's one of the reasons that that's the case because I'm kind of cheap. So I don't like buying glasses very much. But I found out that through 1-800-CONTACTS, you never have to update your prescription. They'll just keep sending you your old prescription of contacts. And I'm just setting somebody free right now. So this is free for you, that if you use 1-800-CONTACTS, you send them a prescription, and they'll just constantly refill that without ever asking for a new doctor's note. So that one's free for you today. But anyway, so I would do that, and I would get cheap contacts, and they would be mailed to me, but I never had to go and get a new eyeglass exam. But something happened along the way, as you can imagine. My eyeglasses no longer helped me see. Um, I think it was way worse than it would have been without glasses at all, but the old prescription in my glasses was no longer helping me. And so a few weeks ago, I had gone to get an eye exam, and the doctor told me my eyes looked pretty good, but she said, you're wearing your contacts way too much. You don't take them out at night. You wear them way longer than you're supposed to. I think, you know, they want you to wear them like two weeks and then throw them away. I wear mine about two years and then throw them away. Um, again, I'm kind of cheap, but, you know, I saved my money for chicken fajitas. But here's what I did. I said, okay, then I'm going to get me some glasses. I'm going to get some glasses that I can wear, that I can see. And so I went, Corey said, hey, there's this place I really like. I want to take you there, and so we'll, we'll get you some glasses. So I got the prescription from my eye doctor, and I went to this other place, and we tried on glasses. And interestingly, none of the ones I liked did she like. But um, we, we decided to go with one that we compromised on that she liked and that I paid for. And so uh, we bought some glasses, and here's the thing. Like, you may not like these, but I can see you today, and that's pretty exciting uh, but the selling factor was for me was that my wife thinks they're cute. So that's really the only reason that I'm wearing these glasses today. But here's the thing. Whether you like them or not, they're just something new that I'm trying. So I'm gonna, I, I may be in contacts next Sunday. And if so, then you'll know that uh, I probably lost an argument at the house. So here's the other thing that happened. Yesterday, I ran a 5K. You look at me, I look like a runner. I, I know that. But I ran a 5K. And 
you know, real runners, they like, you know, carb load for, for, you know, races and stuff. I calorie loaded. Like the night before the race, I ate like a single combo from Wendy's. I just decided not to upsize the fries. And so I was like, yeah, I'm preparing for a race. Um, the, the only training that I did was about four years ago. I ran another 5K. Um, and so I did pretty well. Uh, I ran it in 32 minutes and eight seconds, which I was pretty proud of. Uh, for those that are not really sure, a 5K is a little over three miles. So, I mean, it was less than 11 minutes a mile pace. And again, no, no training. I didn't really even stretch. I kind of got out of the car and just ran. I wasn't even sure if it was the right race. It was just a group of people running between cones and the sidewalk. And I just jumped in. And uh, I'm not ashamed to admit that Pastor Josh Rice, who's preached here before, he ran it in 21 minutes, which is stupid. I mean, that's ridiculous. I think he only ran a mile, but he, he was credited for all three. I'm also not ashamed to admit that I was beaten by a 74-year-old man wearing khakis, a button-down flannel shirt, long sleeve, tucked in, and a belt. He ran it in 28 minutes which was a little faster than my time, I went through all of the standings and determined that my 3208 would have won the female 60 to 89-year-old division. <laughs> that is the only category I would have won. Every other age group had someone or a lot of people run faster than me. And, uh, but, you know, it was something new I was trying. It was just something new that I decided, I heard about it, the Marietta campus was putting it on, it was to raise money for orphans around the world, and so I decided, hey, I'm going to run. And so I got up early, and I drove down there, and I ate a banana on the way, because I think that's what you're supposed to do. And so I ran a 5K, because it's something new that I wanted to do, and I wanted to try. And you know what? All day yesterday, I felt fantastic. Today, I felt like I was dying, but all day yesterday, I felt fantastic, and I thought, you know what? I need to become a runner. And then I passed Wendy's and I pulled in and got another single combo. So I was like, no, I don't need to become a runner. It's just something new that I was trying. And today I want to talk to you a little bit about new things. So if you've got a Bible, flip with me to Exodus chapter 4. And I want us to look at a story that some of us know, and maybe we know it really well. I've actually preached out of this passage and this story before from this stage, but took a little different view of the story than what I've been reading over the last few weeks in preparation of today. This is the story about the man named Moses. Moses was the guy, if you remember, who he was born at a time when the ruler of that day had said that all new uh, babies that were boys who were born had to be killed. So his mother did what just about any loving mother would do. She put him in a basket. She put him in the river. She put his sister out beside the river to keep watch. And eventually Pharaoh's daughter comes and sees the basket and opens it up and sees the boy. And the sister helps, you know, make sure that Moses' mom gets to care for him. And then he eventually ends up in the palace. And one day he's out there walking around the palace and uh, he sees an Egyptian who is hurting one of the Hebrew brothers of his. And so he kills the Egyptian and thinks no one will see what has happened. But eventually the next day when he goes back out, someone says, hey, what are you going to do? Kill me like you killed the guy yesterday. And he goes on the run. And for the next 40 years, he spends out in the desert just kind of tending sheep and just kind of being out in the middle of the desert there. And one day as he's walking along in the desert, just doing his job and maybe bored, I'm not really sure, he sees a bush that catches fire, and that bush is burning, but it's not being consumed. And so he turns his attention toward that bush, and out of that bush comes the voice of God, and Moses begins to have a conversation with the voice of God coming from this burning bush. 
And out of this conversation, God calls him to go and set the Hebrew people free who are in captivity and under the, the, the rule and the bondage of these Egyptian slave masters. And so he says, you got to go back to Pharaoh and you got to help set my people free. And Moses begins to have this conversation about why he's not good enough and what happens if I get there and the Hebrew people don't even think I'm the guy to lead them. And we pick up in that conversation at the beginning of Exodus chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, and I'm going to adjust my glasses about 19,000 times today, so I apologize if that's distracting. This is what it says in verse 1. Moses answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you. Then the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. And the Lord said, throw it on the ground. And Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it, which is obviously the smart thing to do. Then the, That's not in the Bible. That was just me adding commentary there. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. So he says, hey, take what do you have in your hand? He says, I've got a staff. He says, throw it down. That's a snake. Okay, now pick the snake up. Not sure I'd have done that, but he picks the snake up. It turns back into a staff. And, and God says to him, this will be the sign so that if they are not sure that I'm the one sending you, you can show them this really cool thing that I can do with your staff, and that will show them that I am God who is sending you. And then they have this other thing. He's supposed to take his hand, put it inside of his jacket. It comes out. It's got leprosy on it. He sticks it back in. Now it's clean. It's a really amazing thing that Moses is getting to see. But Moses is still not convinced. He says, hey, I don't speak very well. I don't think I'm the guy that you should be sending. Look at this in verse 13. But Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. If you've ever been asked by God to do anything bigger than you, if you've ever been stretched, if you've ever gotten an opportunity that seemed larger than you, maybe you've said something like this. Please, God, send someone else. And this is what verse 14 says. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, What about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you, and he will be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth, and I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But listen to this in verse 17. But take this staff in your hand so that you can perform the signs with it. He says, okay, all right, listen, Moses, that's fine. You don't think you speak very well, so Aaron's coming. He'll speak for you, but you've got to tell him what to say. You've got to teach him. You've got to train him. This is a little bit of a leadership development model that God is saying that Moses should entertain here. He says, but listen, you may not be the one that's going to speak, but I want to work through you to do the signs and wonders, the miraculous. So make sure you take the staff with you. That's really, really important. And, and I've read this story, and I've even preached out of this story, but I don't know if it wasn't until just the last few weeks when I was actually preparing to teach someone somewhere else when I saw a new truth here that, that Moses already had the staff in his hand before God called him to anything. It was the staff that he was using to lead the sheep around the desert. But then when God gets a hold of that thing that is in his hand, it now becomes an instrument to reveal the power and the might of God to Moses and to somebody else. And so here's the question that I had in my heart. What is it that I have in my hand that God wants to use to reveal his power and might to me and to others? Like, what is it that I'm holding? Maybe it's a talent. Maybe it's a possession. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a position in my company. 
Maybe it's a position of influence in the community. What is it that I possess? What did I already have? Maybe before I entered into a relationship with God, or maybe somewhere along the way that it's developed, but it's just something that God can use if I will release it to him and allow him to use it. Because when I hold on to it, it's just a staff. But when I release it to God, I get to pick it back up again. But when I show God that I'm willing to release it, his power and his might is revealed to me and to everybody else in my life. And so let's just look here at a couple of examples through the next few chapters of Exodus where this staff that Moses was already holding, God uses it for something much larger. In Exodus chapter 7, beginning in verse 15, look at this. Go to Pharaoh in the morning. So Moses is already back now, and he's trying to do what God's asking him to do. He says, go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river and confront him on the bank of the Nile, which would have gotten him killed, potentially. Take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now, you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this, you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile and it will be changed into blood. So that's one example of the staff being used by God to change the atmosphere. And other people are able to see the power of God. Exodus chapter 8 verse 5 says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, the one that was going to speak for him, stretch out your hand with your staff over the streams and the canals and the ponds and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Another example of the power of God through this instrument that Moses already possessed. Verse 16 of, of Exodus 8 says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your, hand, your staff and strike the dust of the ground. And throughout the land of Egypt, the dust will become gnats. Actually, not, the nine plagues that we see here in the interaction between Moses and Pharaoh where he comes to him and says, Let my people go. He says, No. He says, Okay, then this is what you're going to see. Of those nine, six of them specifically talk about the staff being used to be the transformation of, of the atmosphere. Transformation of whatever, the dust becoming gnats, the water becoming blood. Uh, Three of those times, it's specifically Moses that does it. Three of the times, it's Aaron that does it, but it says what we've read here in the last two. God said to Moses, tell Aaron to go out and take the staff. Now, scholars are debating whether or not this was Aaron's staff or it was Moses' staff, but it would have been the same kind of, of, of thing. It would have been a stick that he used for his shepherding responsibility. So either way, this is an instrument used by God, a plain, normal, ordinary thing used by God for something miraculous. And that's really interesting. Well, eventually, if you know the story, eventually, through the Passover story, where now the firstborn of the Egyptians, they are killed, including even the livestock. And we see that Pharaoh agrees to let the Hebrew people go. And again, the staff becomes this very important part of the story when they are escaping. Exodus 14 says this, beginning in verse 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Go and tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. This is that amazing story where the waters are rolled back because Moses takes his staff and he touches the water. The waters roll back. They walk across on dry ground. The enemies are coming in behind them. They see this wall of water in front of them. Now God has made a way for them to pass through. And if you know the story, once they get through, then the waters are going to be rolled back and their enemies are going to be completely annihilated. This is the unbelievable provision of God. And if you hear that story, if you're anything like me, sometimes with a little bit of self-righteousness, I hear that story and I'm like, how in the world would the people of God, these Hebrew children of Israel, how would they not just trust God with everything? 
I mean, how would they ever have any reason to doubt God? They've watched as Moses came in and said, hey, God wants you to be free. And not only does he want you to be free, he's going to make that happen. Pharaoh's going to agree eventually to let you go. And that takes place. And then they get to leave. They've watched as even the firstborn of all the Egyptian households, including the livestock and the, and the human beings, that they're killed. We see the power of God there in a really uncomfortable type of story for us that's really a foreshadowing to something else that's coming later in the Gospels. And man, then they go out and they say, hey, why, why are you sending us this way? I don't understand how this is happening or why this is happening because now our enemies are coming and we're trapped because there's water. Where are we supposed to go? And then God provides them the way out. And the waters roll up and they walk across on dry ground in the midst of these walls of water. And you go, wow, the power of God. But then they did what you and I do. They got out into the desert. They got away a day or two removed from the latest example of the power and the might of God. And they start getting hungry and they start complaining. I complain when I'm hungry. They start grumbling. Their stomach's grumbling, so they start grumbling. And then they get thirsty and they start going, man, why, why did God bring us out here to die? Like, I don't understand why God would bring us out here to have us die of thirst. I don't understand why God would bring us out here to have us starve to death. And so God's going to do this miraculous thing and provide food for them for the entire duration of their time in the desert and even a few days into their time in the promised land. And we see this incredible thing happen. But as it relates to them being thirsty, in Exodus 17, we see the first of two stories about them being thirsty, asking for water, and God providing it. And I want us to look at those just over the remainder of our time. This is what it says, beginning in verse 1 of Exodus 17. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from the place to the places the Lord had commanded. And they camped in Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there. And they grumbled against Moses and they said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. Listen to this in verse 5. The Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. And I will stand there before you by the rock of Horeb, and strike the rock, and water, water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. I've hit some rocks water has never come out of them. Like this is just an example that when God says something, you do it. Like I, I, don't, I don't know, honestly, I, I try to put myself in this situation. I try to think back to the examples in my own life, but like I try to think to the examples of when I knew if God didn't show up, I was out of options. Like I, I didn't know how to make more money appear and something was due immediately we had to have money for something I, I don't know how to do I don't have anything else to sell I don't I can't go work extra hour I, like I don't know what to do my kids have been sick and we've been asked God you've got to do something we're out of options when there was a spiritual need a relational need, God I, you got to do something I kind of feel like that's what I see in the desperation of Moses here he says, God, what are you going to do? Like, these people want to kill me. They're dying of thirst. Like, God, do something. God says, okay, take the staff you got in your hand, 
take the elders, I want you to walk over to that rock, and when you get over there, just hit it, and water will come out. And there was enough water for these people, which some estimate to be maybe in the millions, to drink. That's incredible to me. It's this, it's this instrument, it's just this like staff, it's this stick that, that he already had in his hand out in the desert. He was just using it to beat sheep, to get them back in line. When God called him, he said, listen, you possess something in your hand that I want to use to show people who I am. What do you have? What do I have in my hand that God says, no, if you would just release that to me, I want to use that to show people who I am. These people are grumbling. They're complaining. They're trying to figure out how in the world they're going to get something to drink. And then God says, here, I I will take care of that. Moses, use your staff. Now, that's a cool story. And then if you keep reading in the narrative of the Hebrew people, you get to Numbers chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20 is the second narrative related to the people being thirsty. And I want us to read this and look at some differences in these two stories. Numbers chapter 20, beginning in verse 2. Now there was no water for the community and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. I mean, they would just go against Moses and Aaron no matter what. Like, it's how did they forget what God had already done? But I digress. Verse 3. They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into the wilderness that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water here. Now they're not just talking about being thirsty. Now they're wanting fruit and a fruit salad over on the side. Okay, verse 6. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down, and listen to this, we just sang about it, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord said to Moses, Take the staff. And you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. And you will bring water out of the rock for the community so that they and their livestock can drink. Now, before we get to the speaking to the rock part, here's what you need to know. Before they had to do anything for God, they just got to be in the presence of God. If you go all the way back to the burning bush, what did God say to Moses before he asked him to go and set the people free? He said, take off your sandals for this is holy ground. You are in the presence of God. Recognize that. And now once you leave the presence of God, do something with that. You get to Numbers chapter 20 and what you see here is that Moses and Aaron, as the people have come against them... They said, okay, what are we supposed to do? And they just fall face down and the, the glory of the Lord falls on them. They experienced the glory of God. And then God said, now get up, leave this place, and obey me. And here's what I know. I have spent... Hours and hours and hours and hours in the presence of God, and nothing changed after that because I did not practice obedience after experiencing God. Experiencing the presence of God will not get you through, it's enough to. 
But if you and I don't commit to allow the experience with God to change our level of obedience, we are no better after it than we were before it. We just feel better. You sit in a room like this and they sing the glory down and you're like, thank you, Jesus. And then we leave that place and God says, okay, now, after you've experienced my glory, after you've gotten a taste of who I am, after you've rested in me for a moment, now when you leave this place, here, I just need you just to, just to be obedient, just a little bit obedient here, and here's what I need you to do. I just need you to get out of that relationship. And you're like, no, 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 nope, sorry, can't do that. I'll see you next Sunday and we'll experience this thing again. He's like, no, 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 here, here's what I, can you, just, can you just be obedient a little bit? Like in between experiences with me, in between experiences where the glory falls, in between that, can you just be obedient and just spend some time with me? I'm sorry, I'm busy Monday through Saturday, but if you'll meet me back here next Sunday morning, let's let the glory fall together again. It's like, no, no, okay, can, like, okay the glory fell, we experienced the presence of God. Man, okay, so Jeremy, can you now, like, can you quit doing that thing? that you're doing. It's sinful. It's disobedient. Man, God, I would really love to, but I got to be honest. I'm, it's, it's a, that's a pretty big stronghold in my life. I don't know that I can do that, but let's work on that. But man, good job today in worship, God. I mean, like I got the tingles down both arms. That was awesome, God. Like I love when they sing that song. Like when they do that key change, like coming out of the bridge, Man, that felt amazing. We'll be back together next week, God. See you then. And here's what I know. Experience with God always feels better than obedience to God. I know that. I've walked that in my life. But I think that God gives us experience to call us to obedience. I think he does. I think he says, hey, just come and rest in my presence for a moment get a glimpse of who I am and how big I am and how good I am towards you. And then let's not just let that be something that happens in a moment, but let's linger in that in your obedience until next time. Experience with God always feels better than obedience to God. Now look at this in verse 9. Look at how Moses responds to being in the glory and the presence of God. And God says, okay, take the staff and now go speak to the rock. Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him, and he and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock. And Moses said to them, listen, you rebels, now he's calling them names, just, uh, listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and he struck the rock twice with his staff. I don't think that's what he's supposed to do. And water gushed out and the community and the livestock drank. Listen to this in verse 12, terribly sad. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land that I've given them. Early on in the story, when God's calling Moses, he tells him to bring them out of Egypt and into the promised land. And what we're going to see here, if you continue reading, is that he brings them out of Egypt and into the desert, but he never gets to go with them in the promised land because of his disobedience standing in front of this rock. It's sad. I don't understand it completely because there's so many times when everybody else in the camp was disobedient and Moses was obedient. But here we have this one moment of disobedience and it throws away everything about Moses' future. And here's what I would say to you and here's what I would say to me as a word of caution. One moment of disobedience in our lives forfeits our future as well. 
Don't think that you can get away with it. Eventually, you'll get caught. Imagine having to sit and tell your spouse what you've been doing in secret. Imagine what you would have to do to sit and tell your children what you've been doing in secret. Imagine what you would have to do to sit and tell your boss why you're having to resign because of what you've been doing in secret. Quit disobeying and be obedient. You will forfeit your future as well. Because Moses missed the promised land. His entire future was forfeited because God said, speak to the rock, and instead he struck the rock. Now, why would he do that? Because that's what he knew God did back then. I think this was a moment where Moses lacked faith and trust that God could do a new thing. I don't know that his, his disobedience was entirely motivated on sin as an act other than that it was sin as lack of faith that God could do something new. Once we see God do something one way, we assume that's the way he's got to do it all the time. But here's what I believe. Choose obedience over disobedience every time. Every time, whenever you come down to a decision and you don't know and it's black and white and it's gray and it's all multicolored and you're... I would ask this question, what is the most obedient thing that I could do? Like, I'm not sure, it's not 100% and 0%, it's like 80-20, it's like 60-40. What's the most obedient thing that I could do? Choose that every time. Because in this story, what we see with Moses is that he forfeited his future because he lacked faith that God could do something new. And I don't know completely why God said this was enough to miss the promised land, but here's what I surmise from the story. God had called him at a burning bush and said, hey, throw the staff down. Turned into a snake, he said, pick it up. And in that moment, God proved to Moses that he was powerful enough to use a staff. But in the first conversation, Moses was never convinced that his words were powerful enough for God to do something miraculous. Now go all the way to Numbers chapter 20, and God says, no, we're not going to use the staff this time. We're going to use your words, Moses. Go all the way back. Moses said, no, 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 I'm not a good speaker. I can't speak to Pharaoh. My words don't have power. I stutter sometimes. I'm not eloquent. I can't do this. And God said, do you trust me? Not do you trust the staff, because the staff is nothing. You had that before I was with you. Do you trust me? If I chose not to use the staff and I just caused the sheep to go and set my people free. That's on me. It's me that does the work, not the staff. Do you trust me? And, and in this moment, what we see is that Moses did not trust God. All the way back in Exodus 4, he said, listen, my mouth, the way that I speak, I, I can't, I don't, I don't think I can say what needs to be said to do what needs to be done so that you can set people free so that you can provide. For, I don't think I can do that. And so in Numbers 20, they just rest in the presence of God and they come out of that moment. I don't know if the song stopped. I don't know if the recitation of scripture stopped. I don't know what it was. If it was just a, a meditation moment in the presence of God, but they get up from that moment and God says, okay, here's, here's what your obedience looks like moving forward. Take the staff, something I've used before, and carry it with you as a comfort. And I want you to go in front of the people and I want you to stand before the rock. And I want you to call water out of it. 
Moses was probably sitting there thinking like you're sitting there. I can't call water out of a rock. I don't know what you're supposed to. Abracadabra? I don't know how to do that. I mean, I got a staff that you've turned into a snake and you've divided waters and you've turned dirt into gnats and you've already shown that, but I don't know how to call water out of rocks. And so he goes and he takes the stick and he hits the rock and because God is faithful, water still comes out so that the people don't die of thirst. And I don't even know if everybody in that moment knew, but Moses did. Everybody else is just lapping up the water. Whoo, we were thirsty and now we're not. Thank you, God. Thank you, Moses. You're awesome, Moses. Man, that stick you've got is awesome. I got to get me one of those. And in Moses' heart, I think he knew because I've been there when I've been disobedient. As soon as it happens, I know. As soon as it happens, I know. God, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry I didn't trust you enough. I'm sorry that I disobeyed. God, I'm so sorry. I don't know why I do these things, God. I think God was saying to Moses, your obedience, it's, it's, never, it's never as much about what I can do for you as it is about what I'm saying to you. Your obedience is not about what I can do with my hands or even your hands. Your obedience is about what I'm saying to you. Do you believe me? Do you believe me? I want to do a new thing, Moses. Do you think I can do a new thing, Moses? Or do you think I just have to do the old thing again? I want to do a new thing. I want to see miracles. Can I just be transparent and tell you today that I I want to see God do the miraculous. I want to see God do things that cannot be explained by humans. And some of you are like, man, that freaks me out. That's okay. I want to be freaked out a little bit. I want God to do something and the only explanation is, that had to be God. That had to be God. If you're attending this campus of our church and all you ever walk away with is a call to be a better person, you can read that in a book. You can get that in a good social service club. We exist as a people and as a church to reorient our lives around the person of Jesus Christ and he was miraculous. Like he was in heaven, we just sang about it, and came from the glory of heaven to earth because he loved us, because the Father loved us. And he did signs and wonders. Like I want to see new things. And as I say that with my mouth, I run across this quote a couple of days ago from Christine Kane that says, you ask for miracles yet refuse to put yourself in a context where you need one. I live in a world, I live in a culture where I want to keep everything at arm's length. I want to live in a way that I can control all the details, that I can accomplish everything that needs to be accomplished. I know what to do. I know how to do it. I don't want to ever get to a place where I'm dependent on God to do a miracle. But I want to see the miraculous. And so here's some questions that I come back to for me. And these won't be on the screen. But here's some questions that I come back to. As I read this story and as I think about wanting to see God do miracles, 
I come back to this question. What is God asking me to trust him enough to do in obedience? Like, where is God asking me to, obe- to be obedient, to trust him in a new way? Like, where is God leaning into my personal insecurity and saying, will you just trust me so that I can show you something new? Second question that I've been challenged with this week is, how is God working around me that I'm convinced can't be him because it isn't how I've seen him work before? Like, where's God doing something? And I go, well, that can't be God. That doesn't look like anything I've ever seen God do before. And maybe it's just God doing a new thing instead of doing the old thing again. And I believe God still does the old things. But where have I closed off the possibility that God is doing something new? And where do I see God moving in and through someone else? And because it's not the way God works in and through me, I automatically throw up my defensiveness and go, nope, that's not it. That's not God. That's somebody, they're overzealous. I'm not even sure they're living right. A church can't look like that. A ministry can't look like that. God doesn't work that way. That song's not even, I mean, it's not even good. Like, I don't know, like, where is God moving? Where is God doing something that I have just completely said that can't be God? Because I'm convinced that's not the way he works. There was a conference up in Chattanooga a couple days ago, and I'm friends with a lot of the folks that were there, and so my timelines on Facebook and Twitter were filled up. And the pastor of the church where the conference was hosted spoke in one of the sessions, and he said this, God will never do for you what you resent him doing for someone else. Ouch. God will never do for you what you resent him doing for someone else. And I got to thinking about the people that God uses. The churches that God uses. The places that I see God at work and I go, man, why in the world is God doing that? Why is God using him? Why is God using her? Why is God doing that thing? Why why isn't God doing this thing over here? Why isn't God doing... I got to check my heart. I got to go, God, I want to celebrate what you're doing. I want to be open to what you're doing as a new thing rather than assuming that you're always going to do the old thing. I want to hold on to both. I want to live in both worlds. I want to hold the staff and believe that you can continue to use the staff. But I want to be ready call me to speak and so here's two questions for you and I today and some of it overlaps with the questions that I've been confronted with where is God asking for you to trust and obey where is God asking for you to trust and obey I don't know I I, I can't answer that for you I can answer it for me I know what God's asking me to trust him with. I know what God's asking me to obey. Where is God asking for your trust and obedience? And the second question is this. Where might God be doing a new thing that you can't give him credit for because it's not the way you think he should be doing it? Where might God be doing a new thing that you can't give him credit for because it's not the way you think he should be doing it? Here's what we know. People fall in love with the God that saved them. 
whatever their understanding of God was in that moment, unless they dig deeper into God and a relationship with God and knowledge of God, they just kind of fall in love with that. And that shapes their theology. Whether or not it's from scripture, it just shapes their theology. That's the God they worship for the rest of their life with God, unless they dive in and and dig deeper and expose themselves more to the truth of God. Here's what we know. People fall in love with the church as it is when they start attending it. The size of it, the people that are there, the ministries that are offered, the style of worship, the songs that are sung. The, that's why people stick around. That's why most of you are here. There's something that you liked about what you saw here and felt here and experienced here. But here's what I want us to make sure of. That we don't put God in a box and say, God, this is who you were to me then, and so that's all you'll ever be to me. You did it that way back then, I assume that's the way you'll do it now, and I assume that's the way you'll always do it. And anytime I see something different, I will immediately turn defensive and say, that's not God, because that's not how he did it for me. Don't put God in a box. Be open to what God might be doing new, even that's different than what you've seen God do. Don't put the church in a box. Don't put the God that we serve who leads this church in a box. Here's what we know. We just gave you an update. In a few months, we're going to be moving. And it's going to feel different there. Not just because it feels different, because it'll be different. It'll be better. But what we know is that a few weeks in or a few months in, you're going to go, man, this doesn't feel the same. Like, this is not the church that I fell in love with. It's going to be a temptation for you to go looking for something else. You, got, you know, I, I don't, it's done, it sounds a little different and feels a little different. It looks a little different. And I don't see some of the same people. I think they attend the other service. Now we got two services. I don't even like that because now I don't sit by some of the same people. And literally hundreds of new people will walk through our doors in the next few months. Don't miss God in that you're not sure that the new thing is a God thing where is God asking you to trust and obey and where is God at work that you refuse to give him credit for because that's not how he did it for you back then let's pray God I thank you for the story of Exodus 4 I thank you for the story of Numbers chapter 20 and I thank you for all the stories in between They reveal to us that you're a God who desires to utilize us in your story. You can use a thing like a staff to be miraculous because you're the power behind it. But God, you can also use a man like Moses with his imperfections because you're the power behind it. So God, today let us lean into some new things and let us hold on to some old things. God, ultimately, let us trust you. Let us obey you. And God, let us give you credit where you're moving, even if it's different than what we've ever experienced with you before. Don't let our insecurities cause us to miss something you want to do in and through us. And God, let us choose obedience over disobedience every single time. In Jesus' name I pray.